Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, IronRadio.org listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and nutrition professor, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. Hey, folks. John and Mike here. I'm finishing up my PhD in exercise science. I'm a columnist and team member for EliteFTS.com, and I write for other major fitness magazines and compete in strongman. Awesome. And we have with us Bill Campbell. Dr. Campbell is an associate professor in exercise science down at University of South Florida. Um, Bill, maybe just introduce yourself to listeners a little bit. Sure. Um, I received my master's and PhD from Baylor University. My PhD was in exercise, nutrition, and preventive health. But it was really a uh, sports nutrition focus while I was there. And I've been in Tampa at the University of South Florida for seven years. And I believe I was created to do this. I go to work having fun every day, um, go home, looking forward to the next day, just loving what I do. Awesome. Now, let me ask you this. Um, obviously, well, well, to John and I perhaps, but li- listeners will need to know. So you're interested in sports supplements and all of this sort of ex-phys and sports nutrition stuff. What about lifting yourself or exercising yourself and that sort of thing? So maybe let's just talk about your origin story. I mean, obviously, you've taken what you do uh, all the way through school, and, you know, that takes a lot of passion. So how did this all begin? And, you know, competitive education, the whole deal. Okay. Um, I graduated in, wow, 1997 with a marketing degree. Mm. And my first job, I was selling herbicides and pesticides. Wow. So, yeah, not, not 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 something that kept me up at night because of excitement, obviously. Yeah. But it was at that time that I was uh, into bodybuilding. So I would – it was a good job in the sense I traveled a lot so I, I could really focus on bodybuilding. But, but I came to a point where I said I should probably try to enter a profession where I get paid to do what I love. And it wasn't selling weed killer. So I realized <laughs> – I realized then what, what can I do? So I thought, well, let me go back and take my – prerequisites going from business to science a lot of time that i needed to do just in getting you know biochemistry organic chemistry exercise physiology anatomy and physiology so i really put the time into changing careers went to baylor knowing that i was going to end end with a master's degree and thought well maybe i'll work for a sports nutrition company or possibly I'll uh, you know, go on to get a PhD and then work at a university. And that, that's kind of where things led. Um, I had a great mentor there, Dr. Richard Kreider, provided and still continues to provide a lot of opportunity for me. So that's, that's what got me into this. It was realizing I love bodybuilding. I love lifting weights. I love taking sports supplements. And I, I just realized I, I need to be into that profession. And just realized that maybe four years, five years later than what would have been ideal. So that, that's, that's how I got into this. And it, it is funny. When I have other students tell me that, you know, that, that are similar with their interests, what I realized was I love bodybuilding. But most programs, when you get into exercise science, exercise physiology, 
the last thing that they talk about is bodybuilding or strength-based education. Right. It's, it's very aerobically focused. Right. So, yeah, and I was always a little like, okay, when are we going to learn about hypertrophy? <laughs> I think it's a lot better. I mean, obviously, there's people like you. And, and let me back up a second. You're like an icon, uh, Lonnie, in, in, in our field. I mean, you, you live this. Um, for gosh sakes, you, your book has a person deadlifting on the cover. We, you never see that. You know, that's <laughs> that's our co-host, Phil. <laughs> oh, Actually, wow. I yeah. was wondering who, who that model was. So anyway, yeah, as you know, few people in our field in the academic side of this actually lift weights and actually, you know, stuff, you know, protein metabolism and, and all the stuff that you do. So I, I really do appreciate your you live the academic side and you live the practical side. Well, isn't so. it funny, Bill? And I bet I mean, John, all of us have, have felt this, but it's funny what the like Jekyll and Hyde sides your personality, what people value. You know, like when you talk to guys in the gym, they're like, oh, are you going to compete again? Or that's that's what they don't even care about my doctorate or my license in nutrition or, you know, they don't get it and they don't care. I mean, some do, but a lot <laughs> of them don't. And then in academics, it's almost embarrassing the way some people refer to my bodybuilding, you know, background. I'm like, why can't you? I don't know. Why can't you just walk the walk a little bit? I mean, if nothing else, out of the curiosity, like, how do you know what the competition or you know competing is like until you, you know, go dabble on some level, or, or just even if it's just love of training, you know, like Fortress has, you know, and so yes, yeah. So this has been actually it's interesting to hear you talk about that too because. Um, it sounds like things haven't changed that much because in the early 90s when I was in school, it was the same thing. Everything was aerobic, aerobic. You know, Lonnie's got a VO2 max of 33, ha, ha, ha. And I'm like, yeah. And I... <laughs> That's better than what, I, than what I would have predicted for you. you know? <laughs> and I can also pin you down and eat you for your protein content, Mr. Runner. You know, so huh. it's just, it's funny how times have changed. I do think strength conditioning has come into its own uh, a bit more. But even so... I've spoken to a lot of people in strength conditioning. You know, John, you might be able to chime in on this too, but it's um, it's not always from a hypertrophy and bodybuilding kind of perspective. You know, strength coaching, so much of it is it's agility and speed work and sports specific, and it's all this other stuff. Um, and I just, you know, there's nothing wrong with just loving hypertrophy and, you know, the supplements that can support that. And I don't know. Okay. So let me ask you this. Is it just training? Have you ever flirted with competition bill yes i i have done one show in my life uh 1999 i i did one natural show uh, again loved it um not i guess not enough to compete again but i i'm i'm approaching the age of 40 and and a goal of mine within the next two years is to do another show so oh, nice. i do have one show under my belt but again my education at the time was just um not not ideal. Uh, my, my dieting. There's so much running, and obviously you know this. There's so much more information now, even just just research that's available that there wasn't back then. I mean, the internet back then was just starting to to blossom. Right. So I'm learning so much more um, in nutrition. And again, I mean, people, you know, some some people would say, "Oh, you're a professor. You should know all this." I, I don't know anything. Every day, I'm like, "Wow, let's 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 research this." Or Let's do this. Oh, yeah. So, Every time you get an answer, it begs like three more questions. You know, it's this quest, endless quest, you know, with, with well, everything research. is just changing all the time. I mean, every two weeks, there's something new. Every month, there's something this. And it changes every three to six months. And you just 
you have to make it a point to keep up with what's going on specifically in the areas that you really like, right? Yeah, yeah. And you know what, too? There's not a textbook around that's going to tell you what it feels like to pull six or 700 pounds off the ground, you know, or right. what the cosmetic effects of certain dietary regimes will do. They just don't talk about that. You know, most scientists don't don't care. I have seen some data on carb loading and muscle girth and, and this and that, but it's really few and far between. So a lot of the stuff... You know, uh, I think like Dr. Campbell is saying, the same thing that, John, you and I learn all the time, too, is you got to go do it. And some of it's bro science or passed down tradition, and you you try to pick apart what works and what doesn't, and you sort of incorporate it into your academic framework, you know, so you're not bamboozled, uh, you know, by nonsense, of course. But, yeah, there's a lot to that. There's no doubt. Yes, yeah. And and just in my own training, I'm – my students have kind of forced me to become more of a of a powerlifter. Now I'm a very weak powerlifter, but I um, we just I just recently finished a study that one of my uh, master students, Ryan Calhoun, is is running. And for ten weeks, I'm we're squatting three days a week, deadlifting two days a week. So that that's been one of the changes for me in my training is more of a focus on pow- the you know the powerlifting part of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Phil's always talking about how he feels like powerlifting is. Uh growing whereas bodybuilding might be shrinking now when i go to competitions if they're big enough i mean there are there's up to 1200 people in some of these crowds you know this is just little amateur regional level stuff so i think bodybuilding is alive and well in a lot of ways but i know what phil is saying because a lot of my students they like the athleticism and the power stuff too and uh i think the barriers to entry are a little bit lower we've talked about this before but unlike bodybuilding where you've got a diet down for 20 weeks you know and it's not comfortable and it's hard and some people just don't have little waists they don't have the shape for it necessarily but anybody can get stronger you know so i think that's part of why that's so popular is uh in fact i even saw something recently that said strong is the new skinny you know (laughs) who's like trying to you know make this sound attractive to the average person uh yes yeah but i see a lot of that too bill i really do with the students they really like the strength and like you um I'm not really there. You know, there was a time where I was fairly strong for being a just a medium-sized dude. And, John, you know, you are a big guy, so you're yeah. a little bit different in that situation, I suppose, where I don't think you're going to have a student come along in the next 10 years It's that's going to be like you are probably. <laughs> but <laughs> but in, in any case, no, so that's cool. I'll, I'll tell you what. I forgot to mention uh, some news. So let me share just a little bit of news, and then we're going to go to break, and then we're going to pick Dr. Campbell's brain on a couple of different topics. Um, it's fun to talk to the researchers because they know stuff before it goes into a poster or a textbook or anything else. And uh, So uh, real quick. Strength and Muscle Sport News. I had shared some information recently about I bought some super heavy weight gainer from nutrition.com and depending on what site you go to the first and most prominent ingredient was something different each time same product different ingredients list and you know that perturbed me so i'm like well what are we buying you know especially because on one of the sites the main ingredient was fructose well i'm going to hand it to the nutrition guys they got back to me right away and uh they even followed up with champion and I can only imagine who it is from Champion who stated this. I have some thoughts of who this might be, but it, let me just read this quickly because I think they handled it very well, too. They said, as per your assumption, uh, the listing of fructose on super heavyweight gainer chocolate uh, on the label as the first ingredient is actually incorrect. 
Fructose should not be listed as the very first ingredient uh, as the quantity is 166.032 compared to the proprietary protein blend, which is 191.701. So, I mean, they're being very quantitative here, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, We'll be able to make the change on the next product run and packaging in first quarter 2015. So sometimes doing a little consumer advocacy thing, things do get straightened up. You know, and like I said, I think they handled that very well. I'm glad to know because I bought that super heavy weight gainer. It was mostly for my son. Um, I love that stuff. Delicious, though. Tastes like cake batter. Uh, But the point being is I was a little bit disturbed about fructose being the first ingredient. And no, it is protein. It is, in fact, protein. So those guys did a good job. And I just want to be able to give credit where it's due. A lot of dietary supplement companies wouldn't follow up like that. And um, I don't even know if they know who I am. So. The other thing before we go to break is the social media drive. We're giving out some T-shirts. There's a couple of you guys who I, one of you even wanted to wear one in your next powerlifting competition. I'm going to get this out as soon as I can, just so you know. I mean, John and Phil and Rob and I, were human beings, you know, so we can only act so quickly uh, with some of this stuff. And I've been bogged down at the university, and every time I try to go run to the post office and send this, I, I either have to go, go to the university or – record the podcast you know but i am trying my damnedest to get this stuff out to you guys i do have it uh and i'm going to send it so just try to be patient uh because we want to reward you know your support you know from the social media channels and all that so all right let's go to break and when we come back we're going to talk about dr campbell's research there's a couple of different topics here from meal frequency to sports supplements and Uh, We'll just touch on a couple different things, and we'll be back. Hi, this is Dr. Lowry with an update on the protein book that you hear about in the ad at the end of the show. Uh, If you simply Google CRC Press and Protein, uh, there's a new development. On the right side of the page, you can see ebook, and there's a purchase slash rent option. And the cool thing here is if you check that out now, because they have an agreement with Vital Book, uh, you can actually download the ebook for 69 US dollars. So that's 31% off the 99.95 cover price. So. That's pretty fantastic. $69, I think that's going to drop it into the affordable range for a lot of people. And you can even rent it. Uh, Lower down the page, they have 180-day rentals and one-year rentals. So you can access the book in electronic format and get some of this juicy information. So, thanks. Hi, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. And on behalf of Phil and Rob... I'd just like to let listeners know that if you love us or you hate us, we'd like you to leave a comment or perhaps vote for us on iTunes. It helps us out quite a bit on the popularity side of things. Uh, You can also follow uh, Dr. Lowry, me, on Twitter. Uh, It's Lawnman7 on Twitter if you want to do that. We also have a Facebook page, the Iron Radio uh, listeners page. So – Uh, Whether it's leaving a comment or voting for us or following us on Twitter or Facebook, 
uh, that would be fantastic. Also, uh, occasionally Rob or myself will write an article for another website and Phil will as well. So lots of ways to um, interact, uh, follow us in other media and vote for us and uh, keep things going strong on Iron Radio. Thanks. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Okay, and we're back from break. Iron Radio, John Mike here, Lonnie Lowry, and our guest for today, Dr. Bill Campbell. Awesome. Uh, Bill, uh, let's just have a discussion here. So you obviously do a lot of research. You're bodybuilding interest and sports supplements and everything. Now, one of the things you had mentioned uh, in email to me was uh, looking at meal frequency for metabolism and, and body composition and that sort of thing. Now, we had just shared some information recently, actually, that it was in diabetics, but it suggested two meals a day might be better than six meals a day uh, for body comp and that sort of thing. So people are toying with this sort of thing. And so what has your lab done? What have you guys discovered? We haven't done anything in-house, but what I did was I spoke on this twice over the last year. So I did basically research on like a narrative research. What What is out there in humans where they actually compared low versus higher meal frequency patterns? Okay. So I spoke on this at the uh, National Strength and Conditioning Association's annual conference, and I spoke at Lane Norton's VIP camp this past summer. So, and both of those talks were similar in the sense that I, I did all, in my opinion, I found every article that was ever done in humans that, again, directly compared more with less. So let me just talk about where the, the limitations were. Mm -hmm. in, a, in a perfect world, this would be on people who resistance train, who are active, who were bodybuilders or athletes, but that's, those studies don't exist. So most of these studies that I found, and I found about six, maybe seven studies that were in, one was in obese individuals, the, other, the others were mostly um, sedentary, not overweight, or some were overweight. Okay. But I, I looked at this, I, I, I went to the question of looking at this through two perspectives. One, does increasing meal frequency increase metabolic rate? And the way that you have to look at that is you can't just say, does it increase it over two hours? So over the course of an entire day, if I eat six times or 10 times versus, let's say, two or five, does that increase my metabolism over the course of the day? Because you see that on the Internet a lot, right? Eat frequently, keep up your metabolic rate, right? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And in fact, if you would have asked me, uh, you know, 18 months ago, I would have said, well, maybe not 18 months, let's say two years ago, I would have said the same thing. I'm like, well, of course. Mm -hmm. The other one that I'll talk about is, is I wanted to look at, okay, so metabolism is one part of this, but what about body composition? Does eating more, or if it does elevate metabolic rate, does that cause more fat loss? So I looked at both of those things, but you're right. Everybody in the fitness profession believes, or most people believe, you need to eat more time, six times per day, every two to three hours. Mm -hmm. And again, I, I taught the same thing in my classes. 
So what I did when I started putting all of this together, and we actually wrote a position stand on this for the, uh, the Journal of the International Society of Sports Nutrition. Oh, mm-hmm. So I went into this project at the time, and that's about uh, that's probably about two years ago. I went in biased to think, and again, as a scientist, you, you, you have to check that. Yeah. I, you, you, but I couldn't ignore. I went into that project thinking, okay, I'm going to find some studies that show that eating five times is better than two. So I went into that project with that bias. But again, I, I'm aware of I'm not going to make you know, I'm not going to make things appear. So as I'm finding this, I, I called one of my my um, co-authors and I'm like, you know, I'm not finding anything about eating more times per day in terms of increasing metabolic rate or improving body composition. And again, he's doing the same search I am. We're, we're doing our homework. We're both searching the literature. And we basically came to the conclusion that there is nothing to support this notion that eating multiple times per day is superior than eating fewer times per day. Isn't that so, funny? So, Bill, let me kind of piggyback off you for a second because I know other guys in our field that, that we know of have, have talked about this quite a bit. So, And that's the argument and the, the, the thing that people love to say, you know, eating six, eight, ten times a day kind of speeds up metabolism. So smaller, more frequent meals – you're saying really does not speed up metabolism compared to same total calories and macros consumed in larger, less frequent meals, right? That is correct. You will not find any, I was not able to find any research to support that. Yeah, I've kind of looked at that too. I mean, some of the objective research has actually shown that repeatedly in more like tightly controlled, you know, uh, uh, opinion-free types of conditions, right? Well, I, I, I mean, these studies were very well controlled in the sense right. that they were in respiration chambers or metabolic wards, and 24 hours was, you know, that, that's what you want for research. Now, again, that has limited ap- applicability. But if you're going to find an improvement in metabolic rate, that's the environment where you want to test this. And again, I found you know, approximately four or five studies with those tight controls and just simply no no difference in 24 hour metabolic rate. Yeah, that's interesting. You know what, if I can uh this is just memory, but in the 90s there was a researcher by the name of Jenkins and he was looking at very small, very frequent meals. Now, I think he looked over the course of a single meal versus a, you know, chopping it up into little portions and consuming it, spreading it out. And he said the total insulin under the curve area, you know, the total amount of insulin that was produced was smaller when you graze versus when you plow down the grub, you know? Mm-hmm. And so there is a little bit of interesting stuff in there, but like you were saying, Bill, that's, that's a single meal meal. And I'm not sure how much external validity, right? How much applicability does that have? I mean, John, I'm not going to serve you a two pound plate of pasta and you're going to eat a handful at a time, tiny amount at a time, you know, right. for the next three hours, that'd be frustrating beyond belief, you <laughs> know? But, yes. Now, I, and I would say, well, one, again, remember the limitation. These were in non-resistance training, um, non-physically active people. But where this research needs to go is on protein frequency. So th- there's right. the real question. Is it is? I happen to believe that it's probably three to five meals per day, um, I mean, maybe around four mm-hmm. um, in a resistance trained individual. I mean, th- those are the studies that I think we need to to get done over an eight, 12 week period. Yeah. Cause I've um, only seen one study, maybe two that, that suggests smaller, more frequent meals are not reliably more effective than larger, 
less frequent meals, especially when it comes to like controlling appetite and like blood sugar, you know, blood glucose. You know, you guys, what strikes me about all this stuff is in healthy people, homeostasis ruins bro science. You know, every time you come up with a new idea or hypothesis or concept, the body's ability to compensate and readjust and go back to even keel usually ruins anything that's too exciting. You know what I mean? Like, oh, yes. well, we're going to try to trickle it out for six little six little portions of the meal or we're going to have six, eight meals a day instead of four or instead of two. And then, yeah, your body gets so used to uh, adapting It'll work with two just like six, and you know, and you can hardly find differences half the time, you know. So, and, and I, I want to add to that. Um, one, I, I when you talk about insulin, I did not focus on hormones, insulin, ghrelin, leptin. So, I, I, I left that alone. Mm-hmm. I also left alone like the feeling of fullness or satiation. But what, what I did recognize was, and again, I didn't focus on this in my talks, that was all over the board. Some studies said that eating many times per day made the participants feel a lot fuller. The other half of the study says eating smaller, more frequent meals made the participants feel a lot hungrier. And right. I know for myself, if I eat small meals, I'm hungry all day. I'd exactly. much rather, yeah, yeah uh, give me two big meals where I can feel, you know, almost sick full. I'm much happier throughout the day. You know what, too? Yeah, I've actually been playing with that a little bit lately, too. I'm eating bigger meals. And again, when you're talking about satiety, like protein is so satiating and filling, you know, a large protein, like I'll have a bunch of cheesy eggs I was talking about last week or the week before on the podcast here. And I mean, if I really chow down and have a big breakfast, I'm I'm really not hungry until lunchtime, you know, and when I do my usual oats and berries kind of thing, it's real low fat. It's, uh, you know, it's got some protein in there, of course, but because of the the way protein I add or whatever, but um, I almost prefer not to have the hassle of being hungry every two hours, you yes. know? Yeah, or the or the time. Well, to what are you going to do when you're? I mean, what are you going to do when you're like in a meeting or faculty member? You're going to chow down on some burgers, <laughs> right? Right? Yeah. And, so. And if I could, let me just give the, the what my application was, because I think this is important. Now, again, this only applies if you have clients that are sedentary or, or that, you know, just starting a workout routine. The, the nice thing about this research, as far as applying it, is if you want to eat five times per day or seven times per day or two times per day, the research that we have says there is no advantage to any one of those. Yeah. They're all the same. So I, I love that in terms of if your client wants to eat twice a day, we can't objectively say that, no, no, that's not superior. Now, again, the, the re- we need the research. How does this in, how what are what does the variables of resistance training and protein intake? Right. And, you know, client goals, too. I mean, some guys, um, the paper that I was talking about the other week on the show, it was more for a fat from a fat loss perspective. But, you know, maybe being hungry all the time with the smaller meals is good from a mass gain bodybuilding perspective. Yeah, but you know, I mean, it's, it also depends on your overall caloric intake, right? I mean, if just someone's having 2,100 calories a day, well, that's easy. I mean, that's three meals at 700, you know, calories a piece. But, you know, when you're consuming five, 6,000 a day, I mean, do you have what's better? You know, do you have six, seven smaller meals? Am I just going to have a couple of pieces of fish and some white rice and I'm going to be hungry 45 minutes later? Or do you have four meals at just a little bit bigger quantity? You know, right. No, right on. Obviously, total caloric intake and, and like uh, Bill saying, protein intake. These things are huge drivers of muscle protein synthesis and anabolism and weight gain and all that sort of thing. So, yeah. Uh 
so we don't run out of time, let's move down your list because you've been involved in a lot of things. Uh, you mentioned the failure of arginine to do anything, really. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so when I, it's funny because when I went to school, the very first study I was in, we were looking at arginine and ornithine as growth hormone boosters, you know, secretagogues of growth hormone, and it didn't work. I mean, we took up to 30 capsules at a time. And but now and of course, nobody really got huge or ripped then. And, you know, makes me question, why are we back at this? It's got a new mechanism. Now it's vasodilation or you know, some other avenues, I guess. But um, sounds like you're not seeing much going on with arginine either. No. And I my thesis was on arginine. And, and at the time of that study, this was published in 2007. It was, and for many years, and I don't know if it even still is, but it was the top-selling sports supplement. So this was this was the mother. Um, everybody was taking arginine for, like you said, for nitric oxide production, for mm -hmm. vasodilation. Mm -hmm. So our study, we looked at uh, resistance training in resistance-trained males for an eight-week period, and basically we, we found no increases in... Uh, muscular strength, no increases in aerobic capacity, and then and no changes in body composition as compared to a placebo. So recently I've been just, again, just digging this up again because I still get a lot of questions on nitric oxide-inducing supplements. Mm -hmm. And in, here's the key. In healthy people, now I'm going to back up. If you have cardiovascular disease or blood vessel issues, there may be a role for arginine. But I was unable to find one study in healthy individuals, whether they were strength-trained, endurance-trained, physically active, recreationally active. I was unable to find one study that showed that arginine ingestion increased nitric oxide production. Oh. Mm -hmm. Again, if that's out there, I, I, I would love to see it. The other part of that, like you said, is the growth hormone part of this. And about 90% of those studies show that arginine does not increase growth hormone. And in fact, a study published um, in JSCR showed that arginine taken prior to resistance exercise, um, or it could have been after, I, I don't remember exactly when the dosage was, but it actually blunted the growth hormone response oh. as compared to a placebo. How about that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know what? In fact, um, I might have mentioned this on the show before, too, but Mike Nelson and I were sitting at a conference in D.C. a couple of years ago, and they wanted to look at vasodilation. Even if we pretend for a moment that arginine causes enough vasodilation to do something, they uh, they opened up vascular beds in patients with a drug called uh, sodium nitroprusside, which is – I mean, that'll open your freaking vascular beds, like, you know, faint – almost faint you know you're so vasodilated and they looked at pro muscle protein synthesis and got bubkis it didn't do you know vasodilation by itself unless there's some insulin in the mix uh, another you know um, anti-catabolic or anabolic hormones or whatever it might be um, the vasodilation by itself even massively like that didn't really do much and you know what surprises me about that bill is that you know you're talking about how popular these products are and I don't know, John, you might want to chime in on this too, but sometimes I think they throw these NO stim, uh, you know, something like arginine into a pre-workout. And they, yep. it's like a package deal. Because, and pe what, what people like is the caffeine and the stimulants, you know, and then they sort of assume that maybe it's the, the NO stimulus when, in fact, that's just not doing anything at all. I don't know. 
So, yeah, I usually think that when a product is on the market, uh, something like creatine, you know, sales go up and they stay up because guess what? It works, you know, quote unquote works. Uh, stuff like NO products, it's amazing to see sustained sales, you know, that it doesn't just go up for a year and then it's a flash in the pan, uh, especially based on what you're saying, Bill, you know, that it doesn't really do anything. I don't know. Now, yeah, again, and I, I always tell my students, don't take my word for it. If, if you have, if you found something, because I'm fallible, I, I may have overlooked five studies. Pro- probably not. I, I get paid as a professional to do this, but it is, again, it, yeah, the, the sales doesn't match the science or yeah. the interest, in, um, which is um, never continues to amaze me. Um, let's go to the, your next one before we run out of time. Our current research uh, on flexible daily undulating periodization. So I'm actually quite the fan of undulating periodization. Uh, and John and I have talked about this before at conferences and stuff. So what's going on there? Yeah, so we're doing a study here, and I have my master student, Ryan Calhoun. This this is his project. So what we're doing is we have two groups of, of resistance-trained individuals. So these people have to, to, to get into the study, they at least have to bench their own body weight, squat 1.25 times their body weight and deadlift one and a half times their body weight. So that's the minimum criteria. Nice. So as you know, that's, that's, that's pretty good compared to the rest of the literature. Mm-hmm. So what we're doing is everybody in this study for a 10-week period does the same exact workout. And I got to give props to my, uh, my graduate student, Ryan Calhoun, just a great programmer. I mean, the, the program that he p- put us all on awesome. Everybody's getting stronger. But here's here's the intervention. One group does the same workout Monday, Wednesday, fr- not the same workout, but they, they work out Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Monday is more of a hypertrophy focus. Wednesday's more of a power focus. And Friday's a strength focus. So every week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and, and we squat every all three days. We deadlift two of those days and we bench. Um, just got done with that. I think we benched all three of those days as well. So you're not so playing that, games. The, the, what's that? I said, so you're not playing games. Those are good compound no, no, movements. No. Yep. That group will call it, that's the program group. They don't get to choose. Monday, Wednesday, Friday, they know exactly what they're doing. The other group, which we call the flexible group, depending on how they feel when they get to to our lab, they get to choose what they're going to do on that day. The, the okay, only so- stipulation is they have to do the same three workouts but they might want to do the hypertrophy. If they feel great, they might want to do hypertrophy on Wednesday. Or if they feel horrible on Monday, I'm going to do the power workout. That one's a little bit easier. It's not as much volume. So understand the question here. Everybody's doing the exact same workouts. It's just how do I feel today? I get a little bit of a choice in what I'm going to do. So it's almost kind of auto-regulated. Yes, yes, very, yes, Uh, Based on that definition, I believe it's similar. If and if you would just define auto regulation for, well, for me, just so I can. Well, essentially, like uh, there's a couple of terms like auto regulatory, you know, periodization, or sometimes refer, people refer to it as like cyber, you know, periodization or whatever. Is basically doing things or going into a training session based upon like how you feel, um, even though you may or may not be following a specific program. I mean, you know, you may. You may have to bench or squat heavy, but you're just not really feeling it. So maybe you'll back off the volume or intensity or choose a different type of exercise or variation. Hey, let me uh, interject too. Um, 
I don't know if you guys remember, but back in the days of the Weeder Megs, Joe Weeder, of course, called everything a Weeder principle. You know, he tried to rebrand <laughs> yeah. things, in his, and there was the instinctive training principle, and this is what it was. You know, this has that, been around for thirty years. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right, but I think I've also heard a lot of people critique uh, rigid, inflexible linear periodization as not taking that into account you know it's like no no we're we're progressing into the lower rep range and you know now we're doing you know um strength phase or a strength and power phase and they don't let the person have any input and so their performance sucks they stall out you know what i mean and they don't get to vary because the coach just learned about linear periodization and can't vary from it at all you know like isn't even taking into account uh, the individual athletes' uh, mood and energy levels and all that, right? So, yes. And the w- the way I look at this, let's say there's no difference between the groups. And and as a researcher, I told Ryan when we sat down, I'm like, there's no way there's going to be a difference. Everybody's doing the same workouts in, within a week. But if there's no difference, that's a huge finding because if if you're a strength coach or a fitness enthusiast and you want to have some control over your workouts based on how you feel this again if if we find no difference then you have every right to choose what you want to do that day without fear of well i won't get the same results yeah no it's true you know it's funny how sometimes in research um no difference can be just as interesting as if you find a difference yeah especially in this case yeah well yeah because whenever it comes up against um traditionally accepted ideas yeah, yeah. Then you guys come along, and like you know, there's no difference, you know. Yes, and I'll, let me just share my numbers quickly. My bench press went up 15 pounds in the 10 week study. Squat went up 45 pounds, and my deadlift went up 50 pounds. Hmm. Not not bad for a an old <laughs> for a weak bodybuilder. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, take home message: What would you tell listeners about? you know, this sort of auto-regulation, you know, choose your own thing versus, uh, you know, versus the more standard model. All right. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to be the typical boring professor researcher here. I, I, I have to hold judgment until, until the study's finished. Okay. We, we finished five subjects so far and we have 25 others in the study now. So, um, again, I, from what I can tell just on the five that finished, everybody gained muscle mass, everybody gained strength. Um, I, 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 my, my guess is that there's not going to be a difference. And if that's the case, why not let your athletes or your clients choose what they want to do based on how they feel? But again, once we, once this is done, we'll be done by Thanksgiving. The data will be done. We, our plan is to publish this in JSCR, the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research. So we're, we're doing, like I said, we kind of, we wanted to have a pretty good threshold to get into the study. Every workout is supervised. We're uh, Dimatize has uh, been gracious to give us protein to give so we can standardize post-workout protein intake. So we have a really tight design in this study. So, I, I, yeah, I'm excited. But are you uh, are you assessing hypertrophy? You said. Well, we're Most... assessing. Yeah, we're using we're testing body composition as well. Okay, doing that with um, ultrasound. Oh, sweet. Okay, yeah, those sorts of studies, training studies. Oh, we used to do those back in grad school. I've shied away from them. I'm doing one now, Lonnie. Are you? Because, you know, sleep, stress, at least you're trying to cover the major bases there, Bill. You know, like give everybody the same uh, protein, you know, the building blocks afterwards and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And, yeah. No, that's cool. Uh, We need to be looking at these different um, kind of regimes, you know. So, 
We have one more question before we are done, and we were just—I was just going to touch on this idea. Um, you mentioned an overemphasis uh, on sports supplements instead of focusing on the stimulus of the workout. Um, that's interesting for a sports nutrition professor, you know, to come to that conclusion. So, you think people are over relying on supplements? Yeah. Um, when I get questions. 95% of them are supplement related. Now, again, that's probably because my research is in sports nutrition. Mm -hmm. But the and the older I get, the more I appreciate how many workouts do you miss? Or what's the consistency of your training? Like I almost think let's make sure your training is first of all consistent, second of all scientifically valid. And, and I agree with you. I think the daily undulating periodization seems to be the way to go. But it is amazing that everybody has the question about the supplement without – I mean the supplements generally – I mean I guess creatine probably would – is kind of a miracle supplement in the sense you might get some gains just by taking the supplement. Lonnie, I don't know if, if you know that would be true, but it's the, – the, the stimulus is, is, is the goal here and then the, the supplement is, well, can we, can, we, can we just get a little bit more out of that stimulus? You know, Bill, I actually said that to a grad student a few years ago uh, who was also athletic, and the disappointment that I got back was flooring me. You know, because I said, you know, they said something about you were a nutrition professor for a dozen years in a nutrition and dietetics department, and you're, you're going to say that it's just the exercise? I'm like – well, it's not just, of course. You know, people always want to overgeneralize, right? And science is so reductionist. We just answer little things at a time. But um, it's to me, I agree with you very much, Bill. It's without that initial trigger, you know, for our muscle protein synthesis. I mean, I know you can do this nutritionally as well with leucine and whey. And, but w without the training, you're pouring these fuels into a different machine. You know, you're pouring all these um, – whether it's creatine or fish oils or protein or some of these pre-workout stimulants, you're you're pouring them into a, an economy car, you know, instead of a dragster. And well, so, Lonnie, it's, it's the same thing you you talked about before, you know, like the bricklayer analogy. They're bringing in all these trucks, you know, filled with fuel, but they have no foundation. <laughs> right, yeah, nowhere to put it, you know. And so I, I do think the stimulus – arguably is the beginning. I know this is chicken or egg argument, sort of. You know what I mean? But what sports nutrition? There has to be some sports. And I, I actually remember saying that to some of the dietitians I used to work with. I'm like, the, they're like, why are you buying a Smith machine? You know? Um, and I said, well, because there's got to be a sports in sports nutrition. <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah. So I think that's a very interesting um, point of view because you yourself, Bill, said that you were fascinated with supplements. Yes, and and I still am. I mean, I that's what I love, but that that that's the icing on the cake. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, if creatine is going to help with repeat explosive performance, um, there's got to be performance. You know, leucine arguably would trigger muscle protein synthesis, regardless. But obviously, when you put you put something like dairy proteins and resistance training together, you know, there you go. I was actually at a nutrition meeting. In Chicago, oh man, it was half a dozen years ago or more, and it was just nutritionists. And this crowd of 300 people, they kept saying, how can we stimulate um, you know, protein synthesis and keep sick patients from wasting away, whether it's whatever kind of cachexic situation they have or you know, muscle loss, because of course that's clinically very bad too. And they were stumped. 
They're like, you know, maybe we can administer anabolic hormones, but those those have side effects. And uh, you know, protein, high quality proteins only go so far. And and after just like an uncomfortable period where everybody's just scratching their chin, I raised my hand. You know, little Dr. Lowry's in there, and this huge room of people, and I'm like, resistance training. You know, it's like that never even dawned on them. <laughs> that would change the picture, and now when you pour in the building blocks, they actually go somewhere, like you were saying, John. You know, uh, it just floored me that we have got to have some better crosstalk across some of these disciplines. You know what I mean? Because they were literally stumped with how you might actually turn on, you know, lean tissue preservation. Yeah, I, I don't know. It just blows my mind. And Lonnie, do I do I have a minute just to ask a or to have a little rant that, oh, that kind of tags along with this? You go, brother. You go. All right. I and this goes along with, you know, people putting the focus in the wrong areas. And I'm guilty of this. So I'm going to I'm going to read to you for a second that the title of my dissertation, which which makes me a hypocrite. But I'm part I was part of the problem. So I'm just going to read this. Okay. Here's my dissertation. Spent two years of my life on this. The effects of branched-chain amino acid and leucine ingestion on the ERK-1-2 MAP kinase signal transduction pathway in conjunction with an acute bout of heavy resistance exercise. So here's my, here's my problem with the current state of research and academia in, in our resistance training field. People are asking such minute questions, as I did in my dissertation, or looking at, does this muscle fiber twitch before this one? Or do we maximize AKTM tour with this or that? When we don't even know, is four days of working out better than three? Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. It does. In fact, Mike Nelson sent me a paper years ago, and I I think it was called um, is system systems biology effed or something like that. And the whole point was that it was a critique. Maybe that's just what he called the email, but. It was a critique of we've gotten so reductionist and mechanistic, like you said, you're looking at one pathway in a muscle, and then we can't answer some much bigger questions, much more real-world you know, questions. Now, I'm not going to rip on science that if you answer a little question like you did in your dissertation, that's bad. We've got to know a step-by-step you know, how cell machinery works and the nutrients get used and, and that sort of thing, but – I I understand what you're saying. I mean, it's so reductionist. We've gone so biochemical and molecular sometimes uh, in academia. Yeah, that you can't even answer much bigger questions, you know. Yes, yes. No, um, I know we all know uh, Brad Schoenfeld, but uh, apparently he just um, completed a study for, um, he calls it like bro split, but, you know, say three to four days, you know, per week or five to six days per week. Versus total body um, study, um, apparently he's he's completed that, and, and I, I guess it was a it was a match pair subjects, um, so that no significant baseline differences exist mm-hmm. between um, ten different out, specific outcome measures. So, um, hopefully, kind of be interested and see what that says. Yeah, so, um, yeah, yeah. If we had more Brads and, and Mike Nelsons out there. The world would be so much better. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, yeah. When I'm done with my when my study, I, I'm going to start doing some of this it's like you know i've talked about this with other people too all the things that we, we there's so many absolutes that we take for granted that are just absolutes but we don't really have a lot of scientific evidence behind them you know we just take them as absolutes right through experience or you know through trial and error or whatever yeah and you know what sometimes people will say 
and even Phil has said this before, is like, that study was so obvious, you know, that I can't believe they asked that question, and that's the answer. We all know that. And right. sometimes my response to that is, I, I hear you, brother. But on the flip side, we have to document these things a little at a time uh, so it's not just tradition or gym science, but it's actually in the literature, and then we can stand on that and retire. You know, so making these little uh, documentation points can be good, but I know what you, both you guys are saying, too. And you know what? When you go do it, you have insights that just an egghead who's never touched a weight would not have. You know, you could come up with better questions like, I wish I knew this, or is that training stimulus better than, you know, than the other one? And you actually know what it's like to have a bar on your back, you know, and I think that gives you insight as a researcher. And Bill, like you and I were saying just, uh, I think before we hit record, but that's a good thing, you know, and even when we were recording, you got to move uh, ultimately in that direction a little bit. I mean, do we want all the exercise physiologists just to be the endurance athletes, long distance runners trying to answer, you know, the rare question when they even feel like it? about what we do because what insight could they have you know they don't know what it's like to pull 600 pounds off the floor or you know do a session of high rep squats and you know what i mean so i do yes. think it, it helps to have that you get your hands dirty and have that real world perspective because i think then you can ask better questions absolutely yeah all right fellas um well that is it uh for this week and i just wanted to say thank you dr campbell Thank you, guys. Let's do this yeah, again. <laughs> Absolutely. It's good to have a little network. And, you know, we we rotate people through and that sort of stuff. And it's like uh, you were saying, John, there's always new research, you know. Yep. And uh, when you go behind the scenes to the labs, you get it before, you know, it appears even in a textbook, let alone in a muscle magazine or something, you know. And you know what? Not just that. I see a lot of stuff online that's just opinion. It, their opinion articles presented as fact. And oh my gosh, that's just that's just it's just so proliferated right now. It's every week is something. Every week, it's and it's this. worse, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's yes. worse than ten years ago. You know, Fred Hatfield was on the show uh, months ago saying that. You know that they used to pay better, <laughs> and then they'd get some legitimate people coming and do evidence based articles. Now everything's opinion presented as fact. It's just and anyway, so. You know, that's why you, you go to the guys in the labs. All right. Well, we will see everybody next week. Thanks again, guys. Thank you. Thanks. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, Please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.